Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and enlightening conversations around movement practice and how you can become the most heroic version of yourself through pursuing movement that's relevant to your nature. This is a podcast that's going to feature some of the top movers in the world, some of the most amazing movement thinkers, and people from fields that are related to movement as far afield as evolutionary theory, strength and conditioning, and everything in between. So if you're interested in movement, please stick around. And if you like our work and want to support it, please consider supporting us on Patreon because this podcast is completely listener supported. We don't want to take any advertising. We don't want to interrupt your experience of watching the show. So what really helps us get the best thinkers on, have the time to put these together, have the best quality for you guys as far as audio and video is your support. So please consider supporting us and enjoy the rest of the show. Welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. My guest this week is Sasha Sabo. Sasha is a very experienced parkour coach and the founder of Scotchy Pistics, which is a parkour clothing company. He's from the former Yugoslavia, and he's taught all over Europe and the States with various organizations. He's a really interesting thinker in how we can apply movement training um, and a very interesting teacher. So I was really excited to dig into his experience and how he built up his perspective on movement training, on parkour training, and kind of what that looks like in a broader philosophical um, context. So without further ado, I prevent, present, <laughs> present uh, Sasha Sela. So first of all, first question. Is your first name Sevo or Sasha? <laughs> uh, Sasha. Sasha is my first name. So Sevo is my last name. Yes, Sasha. yes, yes. Sasha we, Yes, we often yeah, in Serbia write uh, opposite the first la, last name and then the first name. So people get confused. But uh, most of the, yeah, but most of the people actually here call me just by my last name. So it's like easier to put uh, your <laughs> last name first. <laughs> okay, okay. So. Well, I'll call you Sasha for the podcast. Um, so, Sasha, you you popped onto my radar years ago. I was talking about some of the best coaches in the parkour industry, and most everyone that I could name was in North America, and just a few in England. And so, some folks were like, "Well, you know, where are the Europeans on this list?" And I said, um, "I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> who, who are the Europeans on this list?" And and one of the first people that got mentioned was you. And I said that your work with your coaching was really um, exceptional and then you approached me like last year i think about trying out some of your your garments scoppy sticks and um yeah that's it um uh, you need to practice a little bit but (laughs) people will know maybe uh, maybe you can just you you can just call it scotchy it's easier scotchy okay so you um uh and, and we had a chance to have a little bit of a conversation then and it turned out that we had a lot of common interests in what we were thinking about as far as movement and the philosophy behind movement i know you're also kind of interested in jordan peterson and some of the like uh mythic architecture storytelling aspect of movements so just before we go on what would be great is to get kind of an introduction to who you are um like what you're, you've been doing in the movement community, how long you've been involved and kind of what the, the different elements of your project are. Okay. So I'll uh, easily, thank you. Thank you uh, for hosting me first. And uh, I'm happy to do this interview with you. Uh, I will introduce myself. I'm coming from uh, Eastern Europe, uh, 
usually people ask me, oh, where are you from? And then I get confused with that question because our country, uh, the country where I'm born actually doesn't exist anymore because the war happened. So I'm born in Yugoslavia, but now there are seven different countries. Mm -hmm. So I don't want actually to put myself, oh, I'm this one or this one, Croatian or Serbia or whatever. So I just will say Yugoslavia or Eastern Europe. Uh, yeah, war was betting, but nobody, we don't have a winner in this war. So I don't like to, uh, like put meat in specific, you know, like I, if I'm Serbian or not, it doesn't, doesn't mean like we are all humans and we are trying to be better sure. every day. My parkour journey is starting in 2005. Uh, just before it started, I had uh, some really bad injury. Uh, car accident and then after that car accident I was recovering for a year something like that and my motivation to get uh, doing some physical work it was first my father because at that time he was training a lot like he was uh, 40 something and he was doing push-ups running uh, he was doing uh, handstands and stuff like that and you know he was just in front of my face almost every day doing some stuff and I was laying in the bed recovering from this car accident and uh, somehow with kind of watching him, he implanted, implanted that idea in my head that, you know, I, I want to be like him or something similar, you know, I want to do that stuff. I want to be able to do that or maybe go beyond that. I didn't know at the time, but this was like some kind of reflection. And then uh, it, it got, you know, it, it catch me. Then eventually I start doing trying to do handstands and stuff like that. Didn't, didn't really work for me. Uh, he also was saying a lot of times, oh, you should do, you know, you're so lazy, you're just playing PlayStation, blah, blah, blah. You should do more uh, push-ups and stuff like that. Uh, uh, at your age, uh, you know, I was uh, doing this and that and that. Uh, yeah, I was so crazy and, and skilled and so on. And but also he knew I could not do really all that stuff because I was injured. But he was just like, I don't know what was his, uh, you know, idea but it worked on that because i start training and start doing uh, some of that stuff but not when he was looking because he kind of annoyed me with all uh, with all these words you know you i did this i did that blah blah so when he's at work i was training when he came back home i go play playstation for so, yeah. a couple of months i was 15 14 15 15 yeah uh and then uh, after, no, I, a little bit more than 15, sorry, because I started like training parkour about when I had 17. Uh, so uh, my first challenge was to do a handstand. And it took me, I think, two or three months to like do a kind of a handstand. And then one day when I was ready to show, to show it, you know, to him, uh, he was coming back from work and I was doing handstand in the garden. And then he came like, uh, just, just passed me and go to the house and then, like I was like, what the fuck, what happened? He didn't notice I did the handstand. Like, <laughs> and then I, I run in the house and like, do you see that? And he's like, what, that? You call that handstand? That's just a shit form ever. And they're like, what, like, fuck, I invest two months in this. And then you just like drown it. So that's actually how I get started in, in doing some physical things. And then when I actually start doing more repetitions, more physical work. Then I did my first handstand even better, blah, blah. And then I asked him after a couple of months, like, okay, can you walk down the stairs in the handstand? And then he told me, oh, no, I never did that. So that was my actually first, my own challenge 
that I will create for me and then dedicate my time to, to do it. And it took me again uh, for a couple of months and then I did that. And then after that, I, I got a CD with uh, some parkour people jumping around the UK, I think. And then I start uh, copying them and trying to do that kind of moves. That would have been like Jump Britain at that time, right? No, no, no. It was, um, it was uh, training day one or something like this from Chase Armitage or something. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was for these guys, but it was just a year before YouTube, like 2005. Yeah. When I, when I, get, that, uh, when I get that video. Yeah, no, just copying. Copy, 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 try to do crash a lot of times, <laughs> but uh, eventually worked. Did your father have like a gymnastics background or where was all that calisthenics stuff? No, 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 uh, no background. So the, the childhood was quite wild and crazy because of the old war. A war happened when I had, uh, war started when I had uh, three, uh, when I was three years old, but yeah. the war was uh, for five years going on. So after the war when i settled with my family in serbia uh, because i'm born in croatia so that people get confused um, and when i moved there so my growing up was quite hard in terms that my parents couldn't really you know give me opportunity to train something and uh, uh, pay for to do some sport so i grew up kind of wildly i was training climbing trees and, and stuff mm -hmm. jumping around like and doing a lot of things playing basketball and uh, some other sports with the guys in the in the neighborhood but nothing specific uh then from the moment when i discovered this kind of new discipline i just fall in love straight away and i said like i will do this yeah for me as well so you just saw the one video and you were hooked yeah literally i mean i was hooked probably even before the video when uh when i followed the stories of my father not just the stories yeah. he did a lot of things in front of me but then he was also telling me the story that he was climbing on the top of the electric uh, pillow, how do you call it? The, you know, mm -hmm. yeah, we had in the village wooden, wooden ones and then he climbed like in 12 seconds on the top of that and then he sits in the, on the top of that like, and then he tell me these stories like this and then what he did when he was young and, and doing all these uh, flips and stuff and then kind of I was already hooked there but then when I saw it in, in you know, in the video I said, oh fuck, this is possible and then I that was it that was not going back from that from that point so that's interesting so your your father learned to do flips and things like that without having a formal education yes but so you, my but you yeah. didn't despite having lots of wild time in the woods yeah everywhere like uh, i think uh, i i don't have the like you know i I just did things when I was, because I had this freedom. My parents didn't, I didn't have restricted time. So my parents was working all, uh, all day when they moved to Serbia uh, to just to earn money, to buy kids what they need. And then I spent a lot of time alone. So when I was alone uh, or with my sister, I was doing a lot of physical stuff and climbing trees and uh, climbing around the house and like, just exploring in general, like what people calling today, like urban exploration. I was just like, as a kid, if I go from school, I will jump all the time like this over the water or over some fences, climb the tree, go back. And I don't know. It was uh, a lot of freedom and in that freedom, something was growing. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause my, you know, 
I didn't grow up with a war torn uh, in an war torn country, but very safe, you know. But my dad also kind of grew up doing epic things, and yeah. <laughs> I didn't, didn't tell me about it really. I heard it through the grapevine, but it's like as I started doing parkour and stuff, people were like, "Oh yeah, your dad used to build these epic um, rope swings," and you know, he 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 climbed the waterfall at Wacom Falls Park way before I did. <laughs> you know, he he was. Uh, when he was in his late 40s, he kind of like went out and onto a diving board, just did a front flip, perfect front flip dive. I'd never seen him flip before. Yeah. And so <laughs> the same, and I asked him about it, and he was like, you know, in school, basically, they were tumbling and doing front handsprings and back handsprings and flips. And that was just part of the lifestyle of kids in his yeah. generation. Yeah. yeah. And so I've attributed why that kind of stopped in my generation to kids getting sort of funneled into structured sports and out of like having playtime also increases in homework and fear of letting kids outdoors and then the rise of video games. Um, but then like listening to your story, it sounds like a different, a different story. Like I asked, have you ever asked like why your dad was doing this stuff when he was 15 without knowing about parkour, but it, for you, it took kind of seeing parkour to start down the same path. Uh, it's hard. I mean, they, so for example, the, the, they had also interesting period actually growing up in that, in that time when my parents were growing up, the, it was also culture of physical activity. It was Bruce Lee, Jackie Chan, and uh, you know, Jackie Chan was just starting. Bruce Lee was quite active. And I, I remember my father doing all this with the nunchucks and, <laughs> and, and lifting other things, you know, uh, it was the, we are kind of if now in era of this kind of movement culture thing, mm -hmm. but it's of course in the help of internet, we, we have access to all of these things. And at that time they had the cinema and, and the Bruce Lee and then a lot of people was copying him and trying to do these kind of things, at least in, in, the, in the village where my father was. So they were there, but they, also they have a background of doing a lot of physical work in the, in the farming. So yeah. we, Back in the village, we have the, a lot of uh, peaches, watermelons, uh, potatoes and stuff like that. Like, it's a lot of physical work because you need to kind of to, to take care of all these fruits and veggies. And then when he go and work there, he will also implement, like if he go and to water some plants and he just need to drive a tractor with uh, 3,000 liters of water and just put it down, the water goes out and then you need to wait for like for 30 minutes that happens so in that 30 minutes he will climb the tractor and do flips over from the tractor on the ground and stuff you know like you just like he's watching movies and then with that with that idea when he go to the farming he implement that idea from the movie in his lifestyle on the on the village even if he was probably one of maybe the only one in the village he, he was doing that but you know you got the point like it was maybe not so um uh, maybe not everybody get that idea. Like today, so many people are getting so fast into all these mm -hmm. disciplines and trainings, but you know, you, it's same, but just the smaller, probably smaller amount of people did the same thing before. Do you know if your dad had other friends who were doing that with him or was he kind of alone doing it by himself? Mostly alone because uh, I, I remember a lot of his stories goes like when he was doing, because every uh, family in the village they have their own business you know with the farming so everybody go in their own fields uh, and then a lot of stories like he's going uh, doing with their parents work in the vineyard for example and then they finish and then he will run home 
so they're going back with the tractor and he will run back to prepare lunch for them mm -hmm. because uh, it was much faster to run because you can get that, take a shortcut and then also tractor, tractor needs to go slow on the, on the farming roads and blah, blah, blah. So it's a lot of stories where he's a lot of things did a lot. So that's probably some other people did some other things, you know, but uh, in the, in the village, it's a lot of freedom and uh, you could do a lot of stuff with that. I, it, it, for them, that was maybe not, was nothing special, you know, probably a lot of kids was being active on a different, different uh, yeah. types. I, I asked because that like one of my theories is that like what, what happened in the past a lot of times was that there was a play culture where there would be a lot of unstructured play that was participated in by all of the kids who are kind of young enough to not have work and old enough to be away from their mothers. Like in 140 troops, it's like four years old to 12 years old is sort of the, the free play era of childhood. And all of the kids who are in that age group um, will essentially get together and play all the time. Yeah. And, and what I think happens there is that you get this kind of network effect where they figure out interesting things to do and they find all the cool places in their environment and they find games to play that make them physically intelligent. And I think that yeah. um, when you, when you're, when, when those kids get sort of shuffled into school soccer and things like that, then we, uh, that play culture can break down when they're doing too much uh, curriculum or they're prevented from going outside. And so the, a lot of the kind of intrinsic system by which people develop physical intelligence and strength is taken away. And so I think that's one of the big problems. I was actually reading a paper, I'll probably post about this, about um, Pelota, which is, uh, it's, the, it's the culture of Brazilian pickup soccer. Uh -huh. They're talking about how like at, when kids go out to play, they'll play in a mixed age group. All the kids in the village will kind of be there, mixed age, mixed gender. And when you're waiting for your team to, to get a chance to play, you might climb a tree, you might do some flips, you might dance, you might wrestle, yeah. you might go swimming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all those activities just tend to happen around this central game. And I think that's where a lot of these older generations, like my dad's generation, your generation, they kind of knew how to use their body in the same way that like parkour athletes are learning now, but it was happening without having a name. It was just kids playing. Yeah, of course. But also they didn't have, you know, they didn't have the these toys to distract their time, you know, so that's, um, also, I mean, they, they also did a lot of things, as you said, like as groups, I, I know also the things they are, they are doing, they were doing before, like he will go with the friend and they will swim over the, some part of the sea, you know, like swimming for five, six, six or even more kilometers or every Sunday they have this tradition to go and, uh, to diving, to, get the muscles you know for yeah. the sea and like every sunday they were diving for five six ten meters down without any equipment and just put like 30 kilos put out of the water 30 kilos of this and like uh, just to have for for sunday lunch because every sunday that was kind of tradition but also like uh the the stories also that i remember from even older generation like a grand uh, grandmother told me once that uh she was like the one of the most skilled in the village when she climbed the uh, only one from the girls in the in the village climbed like the 30 meters tree and stuff like there was a 
specifically high tree in the tall tree in the somewhere around the village and then you know boys was always climbing it and then she's like oh i can do that and then she climbed it, and like she felt like oh i was the only girl who, who, who climbed this and stuff like that they was always saying some different kind of the games like in the middle of this work if you know if they're going to do farming or they're going to to do something on the sea or whatever they always have something to do on the way because that was like today if you're going somewhere you do this and then you just type and watch in the screen and you're not thinking what you can do but if you're not watching in this if you just watch like look around you there is there is a rock there is a tree there is a river there is a path there is a city there is a wall you know if we don't have this we'll probably do much more so they they didn't have destruction and then that also kind of to adapt your bodies to the environment in different ways is it a game is it a challenge is it the need is it the food whatever it is you know just natural yeah it seemed like my my kind of perception of this and you can tell me if you think this is the case but it's like modernization disturbed the play culture for for my generation and for you, it sounds like war disturbed the play the culture. It's like all those traditions and things were were disrupted because you, know, you guys were moving around. You were afraid. You were you were hiding. You didn't have as many kids to play with. Maybe is that the case? Uh, no, really, actually, because in the it's strange, but in the war, actually, it was a lot of uh, play because <laughs> you know you don't go to the school even if war is happening. You know, bombs will happen eventually, but uh, uh, people actually get uh, socialized much more. Uh, because they know for example there's going to be some kind of bombing or something then just stay in the house or they go everybody get around place and they talk and then play cards and stuff like that um so from that perspective it's hard they don't have all the what they need but they socialize a lot they talk they do stuff together interesting. So, yeah actually that's an interesting point but uh because i've been through two wars uh fortunately so there is a first one in started in 91 to 95 in the uh, territory of all Yugoslavia, I mean Croatia, Bosnia and Serbia. And when that finished 95, uh, we moved out because of the nationalities, blah, blah, blah. So in Serbia, was Serbia was bombed by USA and NATO in 99. So just a couple of years after everything was finished, another war started and we were bombed for seven or eight months, something like that. So at that time, there was school, was not working or anything. So, you know, there were sirens when the bombing is. And then when sirens go back, everybody go out and play. Because, you know, <laughs> so quite, quite crazy, but it's human nature. It's, we cannot stay in the basement or something, you know, forever. Just like the first window, you got opportunity to do something. Or, or you have freedom, you will live, yeah. enjoy life. Yeah, I guess. As much as possible. Got to do it, <laughs> you know, when you get a chance. Well, that's yeah. kind of a long tangent. It's really interesting to me, though. Uh, you know, this, these cultural aspects and, and the history of, of, of movement is really powerful. So, um, but the original question was kind of how you came to, to do parkour. And we, we've, we've arrived at being 17 years old and starting parkour. That's as far as we've gotten. So yeah, yeah, yeah. how you, how you came to become a teacher and a leader in your community, how you started Scopy Sticks and, and how okay. you kind of yeah, going. Yeah, was, yeah, it will go to the point. Um, so for 2005, uh, after the first challenge, uh, 
uh, after copying other other things from the video. It was interesting because I have only one video, you know, to watch, and then you go and study that video so deeply, every move, and then you go out and try and try and try and try. You don't succeed. You fall. You come back. You watch again and again and again and again. You study that one video, and then you are doing. You are going out and practice until you kind of do that thing, and. That was, I think, also very interesting because you get one video every couple of months and also dial-up internet was so slow and stuff like that. It was like you're waiting for three hours to download like three megabytes video. Especially in Serbia, internet came really a bit later and also really slow connection. So, um, I don't know, I, all that kind of, you know, you didn't have that information, so you need to wait and you need to dig and you need to explore to find something about that. So that helped a lot because I was really digging into it. And then uh, I had some friends training with uh, in that small city, uh, but that actually they very fast stopped training. And then I had this idea that if I want to continue training uh, this discipline, I need to move to a bigger city. Because uh, then I find out there is some other people training parkour in Serbia at the moment. So I moved to second biggest city in Serbia uh, with idea to train. So to do that, I need to, I finished my high school uh, and with no money to, to go to higher, edu uh, higher education. I decided that, that also I break my uh, arm, uh, slipped w by walking on the rain, that's important. So I couldn't, I, I had idea to go to the sports and uh, university but I couldn't do it. Uh, one of the reasons was money. Another reason was uh, that I break my arm uh, a couple of weeks before the testing. Uh, we need to do running, uh, swimming and stuff like that. And I couldn't do it because I had a broken arm. So I find a job I, and I moved to the bigger city. Uh, so I worked to pay apartment so I can train. So I worked to pay apartment so I can train. So I, was, I started to... Uh, working every day for seven, eight hours. And then after work, I was training. And that was going on for six years almost. So every day, so I didn't, when I started training this discipline, I didn't have all this freedom with a lot of free time. And so my training was really focused. So I finish work, I go out, I have like three hours, maximum four hours maybe to invest in, in training. And then I will give everything I have. You know, I will push my my body all the way until then so i was i was going home completely destroyed like sometimes i will do so much conditioning that i couldn't walk back home or i will puke or something like that and then uh it was interesting also because when i moved to that city to train with other people there was mostly my friends who was training at the time was college students or high school or something like that so nobody had work but they, they had school so mm -hmm. when i work in the morning they sleep or or in the school and then we train together afternoon but when i'm when i'm working afternoon i'm only one who is training in the morning nobody wants to join me in the morning <laughs> so that was that is also one of the so good lessons because i had all the time i had this training alone you know uh, and that's very important i think in the in this discipline and you need to discover what you can do alone how you can organize your training uh, how you can fight the fears when you're alone you know if you get injured or something how you'll go home uh you have all these different things what are you think, thinking about when you go alone for training no when you go to friends it's much more relaxed you always talk about something 
uh, you uh, talk about how to solve the problem of this jump or how you will go from here to there, blah, blah, blah. There is always also a lot of benefits, I think. Both of these uh, aspects of training are very, very important when you train alone or, and when you train with other people. So I had very good balance then because every week I was, I was training alone. The another week I will be training with uh, my friends. So I think this, uh, I think this is a good topic to dig into slightly as another tangent, but um, I, I agree that, that there's a necessity really for someone to practice alone and also in a group. Um, and I think there's kind of distinct benefits that you get from them. So I'm curious what you see as the benefits of, of the alone time and of the, of the group coordination time. Yeah, we, I mean, there is benefits in everything, of course. My, I think the benefits is like, first, the, the biggest obstacle is to go out alone. One of the, especially when you're young and you don't have really experience in what are you doing and how you, I mean, there is a lot of, I, I remember there is a lot of hits at the time, you know, you land bad and you get spread ankle and stuff like that. So uh, one of the first obstacles is well, just go out and train alone and then what you can do, like, and then you are, you sometimes you spend half hour or hour just thinking about what kind of training you can do. I mean, it was 2006, seven, eight, and uh, it was just a couple of, it's one or two, three years in the experience. So I like, a lot of time was I go out and I don't know, I don't have idea what I will do. And then when I go to the spot and then, oh, look at this, I will jump here and then la la la, or I will do repetition of this jump and so on. So there is a first obstacle is just go along and figure out what you will do, definitely. And then uh, one of uh, my biggest uh, devils, I will say, when I was training alone, it was um, other people. Mm, parkour was not so much uh, known at the time, and people had really bad reaction when see you doing something uh, outside. And uh, one of the biggest fear was exactly that. I go out to do some stuff, and then people, for example, in the it was some cafe or something uh, close to me and then they will just say a lot of bad things to me you know and i was doing quite a pity or balancing or something and they would say oh you monkey go home what are you doing why are you so dirty blah 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 so when you had uh 19 or 20 and then you get this information from outside from really i mean older people definitely and then you need to create the isolate and then try not to listen or try to not have the impact from all that words that what are you telling and then you kind of i mean probably one of the biggest obstacles is that that you uh, believe what are you doing and then to kind of to create uh protection you know kind of isolation from outside world world it's like when you're jumping you cannot really listen to something what's happening or you need to focus for a jump it's same here like you need to forget what's happening outside if if you want to do something if you come here to do a training then you know of course if you're doing something really bad and destroying someone someone's flowers of course then you need to move but like if um, you're doing something normal today normal standards when you're just doing precision jump on the bar or something uh that's one of the biggest obstacles that uh, you as a young person can actually pass it you know yeah, that yeah. obstacle from from impact from a uh, outside world I think that's one of the most important things. And then after, of course, there's another benefit with uh, just you and your head always calculating, thinking, uh, what ideas you can come. You know, a lot of things happen when you're alone and then uh, your mind gets completely alone and it's just you and uh, your body and the obstacles. 
Yeah, there's more. I feel like there's a couple, like maybe to to clarify as a benefit. There's two things there. One is psychological toughness, right? Being able to yeah. to yes. Sorry, sorry for my English as well because I don't have all these all these yeah. words. But yeah, you can yeah put the stamp on it. I think it's interesting because like you know uh, Washington State is a very different place from Serbia, and so I personally I was also a grown man. I was 23 when I started. I personally experienced essentially almost zero harassment from training right from the start. Like I had someone laugh at me one day when I slept. I had a woman who came and yelled at us for jumping over her flower beds. But that's pretty much it. Like once or then we had the cops called on us once and the cops were like, yeah, there's no rule against jumping off stuff. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, it's a really passive culture here. People don't really approach and talk to you on the street. Um, and it's pretty open and liberal. So we didn't really have that. But the interesting thing is that I would say that even still for a, a majority of the people who practice, just the idea that other people are watching them and judging them is one of the biggest limitations to actually taking on discipline that involves going outside in public. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and so there is a, there's an element of psychological toughening and of recognizing uh, when it's important to actually care about other people's judgments of you. And that's, that's a huge lesson to learn because if we allow other people's judgments of us to sort of um, always be weighing on our minds, it can really limit us from pursuing what we care about and, uh, and, just distract us and, and uh, burn our, our psychological energy to no end. So that was the first thing that I heard there. And the second one was, uh, it's almost, I think the way that I think about it is that when you're on your own, it's a bit more contemplative. You know, you're, you're sort of thinking about what's happening in a way. Whereas a lot of times when you're training with people, it's happening a lot faster and it's a lot more driven by emotion yep. and fun. And having that quiet practice of looking at the environment and asking what you can do, uh, it trains your mind in a different way. Definitely. I agree. And also there is a thing that I like to say, I, I feel the trees, you know, I feel how they breathe and what jump I can catch without breaking it. Because when you spend the time alone using all these things around, then you kind of get to know and by just the, you kind of recognize is this tree old enough? Can will it break it or is this you know these kind of things? And then you can you can learn so much by being alone uh, in uh, training alone, surround, surrounded with obstacles, training in the nature in the city. It doesn't important. It's just that I think the time. Uh, I don't agree with some people and say okay, I will dedicate only one hour and a half and I will do much more than some people in five hours. I don't really agree on that because I think the just standing there and absorbing all this information from outside, like from all around you will benefit you a lot. I think the time is actually that, that experience and everything that comes from, from, from real, you know, like by just by feeling all this, what's happening around you, it's very important. And if you come on one and a half hour, very hard session, like, okay, of course you will destroy your legs. I mean, you'll pump the muscles. You will do a lot of benefits for your muscle, but then you will not absorb everything else that comes with that, you know? Yeah. So I think everything is important. Also that, that kind of training is important as sometimes kind it's of all you can do, right? I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm an entrepreneur and, uh, and, uh, and a, a father of three. It's like, if I can get out for a two hour session is really good. Five hour session is not going to happen very often for me. Um, but I agree with you. I think that, uh, I was thinking about this. I, I remember sort of when I first was training, we'd have these very long sessions. And a lot of times when we went to jams, 
it would be very social. People would be talking and, you know, the, the, the amount of time spent actually jumping was kind of minimal relative to the socialization. And, and then I, I ran into CrossFit and started like uh, tip picking up some CrossFit ideas and like, like really making my sessions intense and doing repeated routes. I was like, man, I'm getting more volume in my hour and a half sessions on my own than I would get in a four or five hour training session, you know, at a gym. And I I sort of like looked down on the jams at that point is really useless. Um, But I I recognize that like, if you look at a lot of the kids, you know, and I think when you're a kid is really the best time to have this type of training because you just don't have the same demands in your life. But if you're 15, 16, 17 years old and you can go out with your friends and spend five, six, eight hours a day just doing this. um, Yeah. It's, it's really powerful because the exposure and just being in the frame of the training for a long time, I think, trains your mind in a different way. Yeah. And also, yeah. you're able to get a lot more volume of total training with minimal fatigue, right? And that's huge for the neurological benefits of training. Yeah. So if you, if you, you know, are, say, out in a training session and, you, you know, you do a few jumps and it's cool and then you walk to another spot and you sit down and, like, play Sudoku or uh, whatever the, what yeah, is yeah, the yeah. game, you know, that little freaking game that all the kids love in parkour right now. Um, it seems kind of like inefficient, but what it ends up being is like, uh, you're always in a really good state to try the jump when you're trying the jump rather yeah. than being pre fatigued rather than being kind of worn down at the end of a session. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think it's a really valuable thing. I wish I'd love to have the time to do that. Um, I'm, not, I'm 37. I, you know, I'm not going to be able, able to go and be 17 again. But to all the 17-year-old kids, you know, enjoy it. Yeah, yeah, of course, definitely. I mean, that that's um, maybe how the my or your parents' generation was before. You know, there was always emotion. Yeah. So that's that's definitely a big benefit that also people need to understand today. That, but you know, everybody kind of I think understand that after a couple of years. Uh, training and then figure when you get the work, job or something, then you figure out yeah. what's happening. But yeah, so I just want to say about the group trainings. Then, when you also mentioned the gems, I think in my in my perspective, everything was a, a, also a bit different with gems. I never stopped on the gems. When I go to the gym, that was like usually opportunity to train with other people. So my gem trainings was usually more double than everything. You know, like because. When you train alone or with your couple of friends, then yeah, you your intensity goes like this. Or and, uh, if you decide to go strong, you will go strong that day. But every gym usually was boom uh, because there is not so much people uh, train in uh, one city. And then when you also uh, don't, I didn't travel often because I was working. So mm-hmm. I don't forget that I was having jobs. So when I got the opportunity to go for a gym, that was maybe once a year. Uh, maybe uh, it was like yeah. uh, like six seven hours just do as much as I can and then I will talk after if I can or not I will just sleep yeah. overnight but literally uh, it was training and talking a lot and uh, all this all these fun things I remember even one day jam was happening in my city and I was working and uh, it was weekend of course and I couldn't get the day off and I was standing like this on the window and I saw these people passed by the, my company where I was working so sad like <laughs> like I, I like 
I cannot watch this, you know. They just they just walked there. Right? They didn't train in front of they they was going for the location. Yeah. But I was like, come on, why I'm here? And they're like, oh, like old bastards, like fuck. So like I mean, you know, that's like so when I had the opportunity to go for a jam, it will be no stopping. Yeah, for sure. No stop. Yeah. Is that still the case? Uh, is it still the case? Yeah. Now that you're more established, you're working primarily in this industry. Yeah, more or less. I like to move. I like to share movement uh, with everybody. You know, uh, I enjoy. I'm, I'll move as much I can, almost all the time. Okay. So it doesn't. It's not with me. I'm I'm preparing for a big jump. No, I'm trying to move as much I can. Okay. Cool. I'm I'm preferring. Uh, to spend more hours in, in motion than like dedicating my time to break three big jumps. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, I mean, everything, I think both of things can be really beneficial as well. This is always a balance. Yeah, for sure. There's a, yeah, yeah you just go back and forth in your training with what you need or how you want yeah. to go or where your, your weaknesses are relatively. So you, um, You've been training for a few years now. You're training very intensively, it sounds like. You're training often alone. Uh, how did you... So you ended up becoming one of the teachers in the in the Serbian scene, and now you've been teaching also... You've taught for, with Parkour Generations, correct? Yeah, I was teaching with a lot of, a lot of people around. Was, yeah, I, I will start the story because I actually started completely accidentally. I didn't have any idea that I will ever be teaching and giving any advices in parkour uh, because at the time I was working, I was training and that was all my happiness. I didn't see myself anything doing with parkour because I was thinking at that point, at that day, I was not thinking about uh, the what will happen tomorrow. And one day there is a couple of people asking me, like when, when, is, when I'm training or with the friends or alone, always people join, new ones, and then always looking for advices or what like how i can do this and then i was always there to also help like everybody from the community like it was really parkour uh, here it's really still kind of feels really old in that terms because we like to dedicate time to other people as well and help each other yeah. and that's why i like to train here a lot even now because i felt the parkour moved everywhere but still kind of stayed the same anyway back to the topic is that People are coming to me like, oh, can you show me this? Can you show me this? And how to do that? So I was showing them. And then I, sh after, I don't know, a couple of weeks or months, I figured out that I spent a lot of my training day showing other people instead of training how I used to train, you know, like, yeah. and, then, and then I get to the idea, okay, I will train every day, but on the Sunday, I will help you because if I help you every day, then I'm not training. Mm -hmm. And that kind of happened like that. And then for Sunday, five people arrive. I help them. I just help them. I train a little bit and then I help them. And then next week and next week and next week and then more and more people come. And then like, okay, I think this is kind of now a class or something, whatever. We did a, no charging. Everything was free, of course. So I, I was getting a lot of uh, like information of, of from the students feedback mm. how i can teach and i was learning a lot uh, how i can do that better or i get idea what i can change in my practice so that was ooh, this is like i was my reaction was oh, this is very good actually when you talk about what we're doing then you actually get new ideas and you know everything kind of you teach and learns yeah, yeah yeah like wow this is good and then we started the uh, regular classes uh 
only once uh, once a week uh, Sunday class and nobody was paying for a year or something. Mm-hmm. And winter arrived and we wanted, everybody wanted to kind of to rent some uh, place. And then uh, we were find some place and then during the winter, I don't know, because of the obligation or something, the number of uh, people at the classes are dropping and end up end up that I was paying a gym for them and teaching them in the gym. And then when, and I was working. So I was like, figure out, I cannot do that anymore because I didn't have money to like, I was living in that city, buying food, apartment, blah, blah, fuel for the car. Like, uh, maybe I cannot really afford to pay a gym as well for these people. So I stopped it, but then just a couple of months on the, on the spring, we started uh, like two or three classes per week. And then everybody was charging, like uh, paying a minimal minimum so we can uh, support uh, and have the gym uh, once a week and two other trainings were outside. So that happened like completely accidentally. And then I started coaching from that day and that was 2009. Okay. So you've been coaching for the last 10 years. Yes, no, it's 10 years. <laughs> this year is going to be 10 years. But so how did you end up coaching around the world and getting hooked into How did your reputation grow internationally? I think it's also a kind of luck and maybe not, maybe just also being in the right place in the right time, kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was doing that and then uh, some international friends, international friend from Croatia, was training in in Denmark he was living there studying and then he said to uh, his friends that there is some people in uh, in Croatia and then the Danish guys uh, was arriving to Zagreb 2012 I think or 11 uh, really clear 12 probably 12 Uh, they they wanted to bring a gallo students and train them in Croatia and they asked me and Mirko a friend to show them around spots and stuff like that so they arrived and we not we were not supposed to coach them we sh- just showed them around and then we kind of naturally i wanted to help out with the with the ideas and everything and then we end up actually co- coaching half of that week mm-hmm. and then uh, next year i was in yellow in denmark being a student and then next six years i was coaching Five years, like five years. So they invited me five years back because they probably liked what we did there in Croatia and then how we did things in Denmark first year and then just start, just start calling me five years in a row to coach on one of the biggest kind of uh, European events. Uh, you probably heard about international gathering in, in Denmark. Uh, yes, I think so. So that's like... International gathering, I, also a parkour gathering. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like, one of the best things that happened in my life being there and meeting so many people around the world and uh, I meet uh, also uh, started meeting Yamakasis and 2000 first David Bell in 2008 in Belgrade because he was filming a movie but he was kind of asshole so uh, (laughs) I figure out that this is not the guy that I will learn from or anything he was just kind of annoying and a superstar doing a movie so I just like ah, okay I'm not training because of these guys because of this guy I'm training because of myself and then I actually met Malik and Charles the first of Yamakasi they were doing something in Serbia uh, I'm just going back and forward through the years because that also was 2008 or 9 mm-hmm. uh, they were doing some camp in Serbia with some friend from France 
and I met them and it was a nice, uh, interesting weekend. We were doing kind of training performance, kind of theater, parkour theater, something like that. It was cool, but uh, didn't actually get too much, uh, didn't have to spend too much time with them. It was only weekend and that was it. And then 2011, Lauren was visiting a friend in Croatia and it was a workshop with Lauren uh, that we all went from the first time in Yamakasi visit Croatia and I learned a lot from that that day was the killer day for me and my practice completely changed that day as well because I was training maybe hard and intense but completely different than any Yamakasi I mean, from the Makassi there. And then Laurent did something, I don't know, it's like a pressing a destruction button. He kind of like show you that you need to train much more to get to another level, you know. It's something like you think you're good or strong, whatever, and then you just press the button and like suddenly nothing. It was one of the most intense training ever that I uh, was being part of it because the first day we arrived, we did, I think, five hours conditioning. Or, or six hours. I just, I, I didn't finish everything because nobody actually didn't finish from, from uh, with the numbers that uh, he was doing, but we came quite close and I was shaking after training. And you can see smile of his face as well, on his face as well because he was happy to manage to push some people so much. So it was like two or three days, I don't remember. I think it was two days. Really intense and interesting training with Laurent. And then from that point, I kind of add a lot of things to my training and get uh, to train a little bit more different conditioning, uh, not a little bit, much more different conditioning and uh, to focus on some points that he pointed out at that time. And then, yeah, contact with Laurent and then with the Gerlov and the Danish guys. And then in, in uh, Denmark, I met a lot of people. There is like John Hedge from Scotland that pointed out uh, Blake from uh, Parkour Generation Americas. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people from all around. There was, uh, at some point, a lot of people from Parkour Generation, from London. There was Fuse Hood. There is, like, Dominic and some other guys and Yao. And then more Yamakasis. And, you know, I was, I was there and everybody were there. And, like, I was, like, in a dream. And I met so many people. I trained with them. I pushed myself a lot. And kind of it just from there everything explodes in in terms of teaching because they liked how i how i how we trained there and then so invite me next year for to teach in in denmark but also i get connection with uh, yamakasi uh, guys so i manage to train with them more in the future and teach with them in uh, different events and so on and so on and so on so okay. it was kind of the eruption point was denmark i think okay so you so, so you now you've been teaching in in Croatia. Or, are you in Croatia right now or Serbia? No, I'm in Serbia at the moment. I yeah, I've moved so much time actually. So my uh, I was holding regular classes in Serbia from 2009 to 2011. Okay. Then I moved to Croatia, capital of Croatia, Zagreb, and uh, teach with Mirko uh, from 2011 to 2014, and then in 2014. Thanks to all this crazy connection uh, in Denmark, I fly to US. Blake fly me there to teach for him okay. uh, for three months for Paco Generation Americans in Boston and did some uh, other workshops in Canada and Pennsylvania. At the time, I met so many people uh, again. Like, there is like just more and more and more and more and more and more. 
and then uh, flying back to Europe and I spent living seven months in Italy with Laurent mm -hmm. and training with him every day and that's actually probably the my most valued time I mean seven months training with Laurent was probably the golden the golden mine with uh, with training because it's also you, you I was just my goal was just to follow this guy for seven months I didn't want to do anything else kind of I didn't train so often with in Milan there is a lot of parkour people there is uh, uh, another schools and stuff but uh, didn't actually train with them so often because I had I had this opportunity once in my life probably mm -hmm. and I want to to see how one Yamakasi trains how one Yamakasi breeds and what's kind of behind the practice and it was intense it was really tense uh, I we were sleeping to, I mean not together but like we're like we're in the same apartment sleeping eating training more training more training and uh, for seven months it probably it took me two or three months just to get used to it because it was something that I never did before the, the way how Wanya Makasi trains and that also probably and then with Laurent I was teaching probably six workshops or seven workshops around Italy in that period we did Laurent have something called uh, Esprit Yamak uh, so it was uh, doing Esprit Yamak's workshop workshops all around uh, Italy and then some of these workshops some other Yamakasi joined like Chao or, or Jan so it was a lot of experience and it was just kind of again being there in the good time i think and then i get managed to train with almost all the makasi guys and teach with them on a lot of events cool. so i learned from them i was training with them and then i managed also to implement my ideas and the way how i train what and how i move and what i bring from before you know from the past and that was what they liked it was a lot of creativity a lot of wildness and freedom in my movement because i always kind of experiment i never dedicate my time to 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 how big jumps are it was more movement fluidity always exploring something i don't know i kind of always have some idea and then try to stick to idea for a couple of months and then see what happens if not just change something else okay so, so yeah so that, that's that's good where now we're in now we're three back we've had a lot of time, tangents time flies. that are really useful to for people to think about so i'm now kind of the, the big questions that i'm really interested in is specifically when i'm kind of talking to parkour people and, and movement culture people is like the let's call it the why the what and the how of the practice and i'm, I'm interested in, in kind of getting people to share best practices and how they're thinking about these things um, in, in their own practice and then also in, uh, in how they're training people. So what would you say is that, you know, people talk a lot about parkour philosophy. I'm curious what that means to you and what you think of as kind of the defining why behind what you're doing. That's an interesting question. Also, maybe it took me an hour to explain it. <laughs> I'll try to actually <laughs> joking, try to be very, uh, quick and simple. It's, um, I think there is a different couple of stages or levels of how we how we want to call it. But to I kind of everything in parkour or ADD. I don't want to forget to use that name as well because I was a big part of using Luado Plus Mind. For me, 
what we are doing is actually not parkour, it's more ADD because if you just look at the, de the definition of parkour, it's from A to B uh, and everything else, what we're doing is actually everything else. We are handstanding, we are doing a lot of exercise, we are playing, we are doing this and this. So for me, ADD is a big circle and then parkour is just a, a part of, of ADD. But uh, yeah. When you say ADD, it stands for Audio de Passement? Yes, uh, yes, yes. French for the art of displacing? Or yes, actually, because it's interesting, but it's also, uh, for me now, I, for me it's the same. I mean, when you look at the, the, what they did before, it, they did the big impact, but I will say that if you really want to be precise with the history, then it's ADD and then the parkour is just a, a part of the ADD. Uh, but anyway, back to the point, to what is... Uh, philosophy for me and yeah where I was going is that I kind of want to circle everything in a, a tracer because for me and I kind of I grew up in that uh, period when uh, when uh, there was a Stefan very Stefan Vigru and uh, still uh, rocks around but uh, it's kind of a tracers area uh, period of, of time when I everybody have a picture of what tracer is and what and what is the tracer and who are the tracers and what tracers do. So, and I think that's I'm kind not, of the... I'm not sure the audience know when you're saying tracer that uh, you're referring to the French name for a parkour practitioner, a tracer. Yes, 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 um, yes. Which was the name of the team that... The yes, 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 yes. After... But, after exactly. Yeah, but somehow I kind of, in my head, so I'm just talking from, from my yeah. perspective now, somehow in my head uh, a tracer is... Is all of that, you know, if you, if you train alone, if you train with people, if you teach, if you kind of manage to manage to get all that experience in one, then you kind of become this person, you know, you become one of, it's not something that you get stamped and then now you're a tracer. It's now you kind of, uh, you got me here. It's a bit hard to explain in English, but uh, I actually never tried to explain this, but uh, is now and now is a struggle, but uh, I think every tracer and every practitioner who want to call to call it uh, to call uh, himself a tracer is the person who need to experience training alone and in the groups and training with Yamakasi and overpassing all these different kind of obstacles and uh, be able to teach. I mean that everybody are able to teach. We just need to. You know, not everybody can teach every day. Not everybody can dedicate time to teach, uh, but everybody can give some advice or give some knowledge to everybody. I think the the idea was just passing to to the new people, the new generation, to somebody who is joining. You know, it's not just strict, oh, I am a teacher or I'm not a teacher. I, I will maybe confuse you and I will confuse myself as well because I didn't know what, I don't know where to so start and where to finish. Me, I'm going to restate the question. So what, what I'm really interested in is, is if you could like, not not thinking so much about the history, but um, what do you think is at the center of the parkour philosophy or ADD philosophy for you, right? What is your why that gets you up and gets you to practice? And what is the why that you're trying to pass on to your students? It's kind of an energy and uh, happiness because the the reason why I'm doing all this is because it makes me really happy and kind of really active and really you 
you feel you're part of something that you don't need to define. You don't need to say this is something and I need to be part of it. You just feel that you're part of something and you feel good there. You're part of the big uh, community. And the, the, that's the, probably the reason, the energy and the happiness, because I feel good uh, sharing all this energy. And with my teaching, I think it's not just, oh, I will... I will teach you how to do this jump or that. I want to give you much more than that. I will, I want to give you uh, energy that you will use, you know, to just break the wall and go from there more forward and don't never stop. So I think happiness is an interesting, you know, when I, when I formed involvement play, so it's about play, right? Well, play is about fun. It's like, do you just do the thing that's most fun? It's like, well, you're not going to do a lot of stuff. You're only focused on fun. And, yeah. and so I think it's like, it, it, it's true to a degree, but it, it, it doesn't quite capture it for me. And, um, and my challenge for you would be like, do you feel happy when you're at the end of a Laurent style conditioning circuit? Yes. Yes. You're, you're failing yeah, yeah. on your, your 16, 600th push-up or whatever it is. That, that's the thing. Happy, you don't moment happiness for you? This is the thing. You need to do it certain amount of times or thousands of times or something that you kind of overpass that and then becomes really, you know, becomes that happiness to me. Um, first, it was pain and then it was crying and it's something else, but then becomes the happiness. It's something that actually when I connect with, uh, I recently... Uh, read something that Jan said and he said something that actually connects with his mind now and he said before jump you cry and after jump you smile because when you just think about if if it's the jump that you need to prepare really bad for it you need to do a lot of conditioning preparation you will cry because it's hard because you need to do a lot of preparation push-ups and this and that and la 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 but then when you do it after maybe a year will take you to do that jump you'll you'll be happy you know it's a happiness it just overtakes the all your body because you know that your time that you invest in that now it's you know it's solved so i think it first it's gonna be pain of course when you do all these things but uh, at some point it becomes be happiness so just across uh in this direction is mm. is a window and when i look through this window there is the tallest building in uh, in ex Yugoslavia, Serbia. Yeah. It's only thirty one floor, but um, it's a good uh, good uh, thing, uh, a good story with this building. I was living in that building uh, for a couple of months, and I had the challenge that the time where I was spending there in, in that building, I said that I want to do one day quadrupedi backwards all the way up to the top. Oh. To thir- thirty one floor. Um, and yeah, it was one day I decided to do it. And then I went to go without rules was no standing up. Uh, if I rest, I rest on all four, not, not sitting on the ground, no knees on the ground. And that's it. Like I start in a period, I need to finish like that with no, I, if I make a break, it can be, but no standing up and no knees down. And then I did it actually much easier than I was, than I was thinking that will be. Uh, because, and I was, I was so happy all the way doing that. You know, I was just, I kind of, I, I knew I will do it. I just didn't know how long it will take or how hard it will be. But 
it was that, that when you ask is do i feel happy when i do all this repetition now I've, i can easily say yes after this period of doing all these things hmm. and i think that everybody kind of needs also to overpass this i think it's very important and very satisfying thing in life yeah i have this thing that in order to become great at anything you have to develop a taste for struggle yeah and uh the um there's a uh, there's a book I'm reading right now, Flow by Miha Csikszentmihalyi, and he talks about the idea of happiness. That that if you pursue happiness directly, you never attain it. It's it's through pursuing something meaningful and struggling towards it that you create the conditions in which happiness can occur. Exactly. <laughs> so for me, like the central philosophy of of, of parkour practice is um, is intentionally setting out on a meaningful struggle. It's a quest to, to, to test yourself in such a way that you gain more meaning from life and, and know yourself better. Yeah, that's exactly why you also need to spend time a lot <laughs> and train a lot. And that will come. You can listen, you can listen to the internal side. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the why. So then I'm curious what your practice looks like, like on a, on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month basis. Um, and also what, what it looks like with your students. Do you still do kind of these three-hour conditioning sessions all the Yamakaze? Is it more technical-based? Are you taking up weightlifting and some of the, the other uh, conditioning ideas that have come into the parkour community from, say, uh, movement culture or uh, strength and conditioning? Okay. I'll, uh, I will actually guide you through all my years of practice because everything was a kind of different periods. I think uh, a couple of years my way of training changed. I also try not to get uh, caught by, I don't know, some ideas or rules or something. I also try, I, I was always training my first period of training, first years when I was all crazy, first started with the flips and it was first two, three years was only flips mostly. Back, I was learning everything at the time and it was everything outside. So there was no gym and nothing. So it was mostly back uh, flip, front flip, wall flips, everything outside. Uh, with no any protection so it was a lot of injury so that that kind of how it started from that from that on i figure out i don't want to do that anymore and then i just focused more uh to kind of movement and flow and breaking the jumps period i will say and and the time when i start training uh in different city when i moved first time then i trained with other people so i learned a lot of from them so it was that period when i trained kind of really well because i had the work and I also had only three to four hours limited uh, hours for, for, for training every day. So I had this period when I pushed my body a lot and explored in different ways and physically ways and trying to do this kind of big stuff at that time. And then I met Laurent and Yamakasi and everybody else. And then my conditioning uh, two, three years kind of was on the top at the time. And then also trained to that. It's, it's kind of like water, you know. It's like this and then like that, and it's always changing. And I, and then I had this this period of uh, really doing a lot of conditioning uh, with the Makassi guys, and then in, in Gerlo with Danish guys, they are doing a lot of conditioning as well. And then after that, I had also kind of uh, crazy uh, period when last three years maybe uh, a lot of underbars, a lot of this kind of 
creative stuff, but I don't, I don't say creative. I'll just say that I kind of limited myself to do something else like vertical swings, a lot of vertical swings, a lot of underbars, a lot of going through tight spaces, rolls, dive rolls. I don't know, some something that kind of went different. And also the, that was pointed out in the last couple of years, it was a long run distance. Like when I go for a, a kind of route that I move for a minute, it's quite hard when you go a minute around obstacles and, and do all the time something. And through all this period, in last uh, 10 plus years of training, there was also constantly running. So I was always uh, running once a week, two times a week, three times a week. But then eventually I get injured in my Achilles tendon. So I, I'm not running for the last uh, two years now, maybe even a little bit more. But I'm curing it now. It's almost done. So I go back to run uh, very, very, very soon, I, I hope. And I think this, this kind of, that, that was the per- different periods of my practice. At, at this point, is, I think also it's changing. Uh, I had some injuries last year and this year and some complications with different things. So I had the break, I will say, really good break uh, and felt so good. I think that my body deserved a really good break after so many years uh, doing doing a lot of things. So I had a a quad break. I was training, but not even close uh, as before. And also there's work and other things, but uh, you can always find time for training. If I find time before when I, when I started, uh, I know that I can implement, implement the same idea now. I can organize my time uh, better. Uh, so I think this time after this break, last five, six months, I had really good break. I was training, but really low intensity. And I think now it's a new period that I will just discover. So I don't know what exactly it is. I, know, I have some ideas in my head what that is going to be, but not really specific. I'm, I figure out that plans are not working for me. And if I want to do exactly something like that, always something happened and that plan changed. So even if I'm planning the training session, for me, it doesn't go always how I, how I was planning. So kind of wild spirit is still there and I'm really happy because it's like that. So I'm not, I don't have this worry that, I don't know what will uh, that will be doing. So I, I'm sure that something will pop up, uh, maybe different, maybe old. I don't. I'm not really having the trouble thinking about so much. That I, I know something will happen, and and I'm happy because of that. <laughs> okay. so, Just a feeling. Yeah. 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 Um, I like to think of plans as as sort of points of departure. Right. They they're not they're not there to, t- uh, to tell you exactly what to do. They're there to give you uh, a set of constraints to start working within or to break out of. Yeah. But they just, they just make sure that the, you're doing something. Um, if you don't have anything better to do. <laughs> exactly. They also can sometimes work. Yeah. But you mentioned the weights and stuff. I actually never did. Uh, I was ne- I will not say never because I did gym only when I was doing some recovery, Yeah. but uh, I don't like, indoor stuff you know when when i go i cannot see add ardu plasma or, or parkour being inside i never was fun of training in the gyms or set up places for training so my 90 
5% of my training for the last 13 years was happening outside, outdoors, outdoors, and not on the scaffoldings and stuff. It's always in some corner or some wall, uh, whatever, just not on, uh, on, on the gym and stuff like that. Except uh, only when I was teaching, of course, then once a week when I had the gym or something, then when, I, when we had place where I need to teach, then only was that. But uh, yeah, wait. That's actually a good question in the, in the what realm, right? So yeah. I think of, you know, the why is, what is your practice aimed at? The what is um, kind of the things that actually happen. And then the how is the theory of, of how you're doing it, of how you're teaching or of how you're preparing it. So, um, so for me, I, I agree with you. I don't train really indoors as much as I can avoid it. Um, I do a little bit of weightlifting in my home gym and, and various things. A lot of times right now, like I, I'm doing kettlebell stuff, not because I think kettlebell stuff is like the be all and end all, but just because I, it's portable and I can take it to my training session and I can take a break from jumps and do kettlebell swings and single leg deadlifts and stuff like that. Um, so I, I came from an I came from a gymnastics teaching background. I was teaching gymnastics and then I went into parkour and I was teaching parkour in my gymnastics gym. And then we started a, a parkour gym. It was the third parkour gym in North America. And the goal for me was always to prepare people to train outside. Yeah. Um, but what happened was that eventually everyone just, it seemed like everyone started to perceive parkour as a thing that you did at the gym. And I see that happening like all over the community in parkour. There's, there's large populations of people who only do parkour when they're inside. And a lot of people who used to do parkour outside end up spending most of their time training indoors either because they teach and they're at the gym all the time or because there's a social element. And I think they just know that if they go to the gym, there's going to be someone there to train with, whereas it takes effort to organize training outside. Yeah. So I'm curious if you could speak to um, if you've noticed the same rise of the gym culture and what do you think is getting lost? Like what, what is everything? everything? <laughs> what, what, what is we missing when we, when parkour goes from being a practice, in the world outside to being a practice in a specific space a lot of things yeah i i cannot say it's good or bad but uh, everything has benefits like we said already before uh, training indoor can also be a lot of beneficial works especially for for example scandinavian countries where they have a lot of snow so you cannot really do all these moves that makes you happy flying swings uh, precision jumps and stuff you know uh, you cannot do really that all the time when you have shitty weather all, yeah. all around about year. But um, I always talk about what is getting lost because a lot of things are getting lost when you train. If you have possibilities to train outdoor, first, I think the gym is kind of comfort zone. You know, it's always comfort zone and comfort never goes good. Like, yeah, like if you go back with, if, if we grow up in comfort zone, I would probably not do parkour. I'd probably do something else. But uh, this comfort zone makes you more lazy, uh, less creative, and so on and so on. What I can point out with training in the area that's built for parkour is that you kind of come there and you will adapt for that. And you will mostly 90% do things that other people do because you see it and you want to try it and so on and so on. But when you when you're outside, and of course, again, the things that you cannot move walls outside to, to, to do some jump that you, you need, you have this, if you're outside and you want to do this precision jump, you 
if you cannot do it, you have to find somewhere else. So this, this need to go and find different wall or, or, or the, how you will prepare your body for this jump is the beautiful journey that you need to take. You know, and not just move the box up and I have it now. And then I will repeat 10 times and then I will do the bigger one. I mean, still can work. It's still beneficial, still, still good. But I think that's also that's very important to do to this journey is exactly that, that you don't have all the tools all the time with you. And you need to develop them, you need to find them, and you need uh, to create them at least. You know, you need to figure out. And that's the beauty that you don't get so much at same level in the gym or in the setup place comparing to outside and then outside there are always different occasions there is uh and winds and uh, sun and cold and other people and cars and whatever is there it's always something else that you are pers- like getting in your mind that you're kind of feeling like i said in the beginning if you feel the wind is going to the trees and then you know i mean it's cannot really describe it so nice but I just cannot compare it indoor and outdoor training. I think that lose it so much when you go and put the parkour in the box. Exactly that. You put it in the box and it should be that something that goes out of the box. Yeah. Life in a box. So, That's what I'm trying yeah, to avoid. So I, yeah. I, I kind of, I, I see what people do and it's creative and, and creative and crazy and they can do a lot of things. And I, sometimes when I watch all these indoor videos, I say, oh, this is nice. I would like to train sometimes inside, you know, it's, it's good. But also, I just prefer being outside. No. And it's, it's not about the moves again. It's not about how big is jump and what's the jump. It's just the feeling being out, outside, holding the branch, climbing the tree, jumping somewhere there. It's not measured. Is it 2.7 or 3 or whatever, you know. It's just a regular jump in a regular day in somewhere in, in the world. One way that I like to think about this is like uh, one of my big influences right now is kind of constraints based theories of teaching. So the idea is that um, more and more you, as, as you develop an athlete, you want to rely on uh, setting up the right constraints and the, what they're practicing to teach them the right lesson rather than trying to tell them what's right. And when I took my teaching from being indoors to teaching outdoors, I found that a lot of times the things that I had had to teach people indoors, they figured out just inherently outdoors. There's more, and uh, and there's this idea that constraints create creativity, right? Yeah. You, you have to think in a different way when you can't adjust the distance of the walls to give you a, a jump. It's like, well, how do I work up to to uh, to this jump knowing that um, that that I can't just move them to make it easier for me? Um, so that this this idea of creativity through constraints is important, and then yeah. the idea of all the things that you're adapting to, right? You're adapting to being outside. You're adapting to being in the cold. You're adapting to being in the wet. You're adapting to hard surfaces, um, and and those things aren't happening. So it's interesting. I, I, like I noticed that when you talk about your training, you often refer to to moving around in trees, um, and that's something I obviously enjoy and share. And I've enjoyed some of your videos. Uh, I loved your Tarzan video. I was a little jealous. I was like, oh, why didn't they find me out to do that? Um, so I'm, I'm curious how you see the balance between training in the urban environment and training in the natural environment as well. Was it different or what was exactly the question? Like, how do you, how do you look at that? Training in nature, training in the urban environment, do you intentionally seek out both? Do you try to find a balance between them? Do you perceive a difference in, in what you get out of those practices? 
I, I mean, because of my practice, most of the time was in the city for the last 13 years and I like to jump on the trees in the cities and that's like uh, something that you, I was, I was always liking because you, it's always different grip. It's always yeah. different feeling. It's uh, everything, bar is always the same. It's always you grab it parallel, it's like this and like this and like this and then trees like this, la, 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 la. So yeah. it's a lot of different things. So it's one of the reasons why I like it and I probably, because of 90% again of my training was in the city for a lot of a lot of years i also try now to go a little bit more and seek to the nature because i think it's much more challenging again less comfort zone because now with this practicing so many years in the city city becomes kind of comfort you know yeah. and you have water here you have this there la la you can do this jump here and then if you go out where there is no obstacles or there is a three rocks and a tree, then it's uh, harder to create your session. Kind of exactly hard or it was when I started doing parkour or ADD, you know, yeah. 10, 12 years ago. Because at that time it was really challenging and really, uh, that, what I said in the beginning of the story, when I was training alone, you go out and then you look and you're thinking what you can do. And that's amazing that what bring me here so i think if i again put my body and mind outside of the comfort zone something will be created that's what i said before i'm not worrying what will happen because i just need to change something and then everything else will be there yeah that's interesting i think of you know um nature has even more constraints in it than the, than the, uh, the urban environment. There's more, there's more things to adapt to. That's the way that I think about it. And I think it's interesting. It seems like that that's reflected in the way that you're talking about going into that practice. Despite the fact that I've really only trained in urban environments very minimally over the last six years or seven years, um, I still find it's easier for me to read an urban environment than a natural environment and actually find what's possible. It's like when you, when you walk through the city, you can see, Oh, that's a, that's a passable gap. That's a, that's a wall run. That's, that's a Kong vault. That's blah, blah, blah. Um, whereas when I go into nature, even though that's been my specialty, I find that it takes longer to see what's possible in the environment. And you really have to, you have to physically get into the environment. You have to touch it. You have to move around in it in order to start mapping it out. Cause it's so much more complex. I'm curious if you yes. have the same experience that like you talked about the idea of, um, of, you know, in your early practice, like going out to a spot and not knowing what to do. And then now you know what to do in the urban environment, but when you go in nature, you're still challenged. And I, and I noticed that there's a really interesting aspect of, of, uh, of the exploration in nature, taking so much more physical embodiment to actually see what's possible and how intriguing. Exactly, exactly. I, I will just add to that then, when you mentioned already the Tarzan video that I did a couple years back, mm -hmm. uh, that was so challenging thing to do because the air filmed it in nature and never been there before. I don't know uh, that area at all. I just saw it in the picture before and say I want to go there and film it there. So we have only three three days or two days shooting in the nature, two days shooting in the nature, and we filmed everything in two days, just jumping from one location to another and randomly. I was just thrown in the un in territory where I've never been before. I don't know what the trees are, what the rocks are, and everything was 
and everything most of the scenes was filmed completely barefoot and i was like dropping down in some holes and it was really dangerous in terms not really really kind of i could injure myself so many times but uh, i could say that after three days so two days filming but to be spent three days in nature after three days i feel much different i felt i felt so good and i felt okay i'm getting into it now yeah. you know and i was barefoot for three days and then my i had a little bit of pain of course on my yeah. uh foot because i was dropping a lot on rocks and stuff but uh, after three days i felt much more you know like more welcome to the nature and more feel better yeah happier yeah <laughs> where was that filmed slovenia slovenia okay cool so not too Slovenia, far. Slovenia is magic. Yeah, not too far. We draw, drive all day to come there. But it's uh, it's something that's really, really magical. You need to go there. You will yes. like it. Uh, well, <laughs> sounds great. Okay. So um, so that's kind of... And then um, let me just ask you what your classes look like now. So if you if we show up for a, a class that's an hour long, is it an hour and a half long? How do you divide it between conditioning, technical approach? How do you bend the different parts of the practice? Yeah, at the moment, I'm not uh, not teaching. I'm also taking a break. Um, uh, so before I answer you this question, I will also tell you something about teaching because how I like to teach is I don't, because I'm teaching for the last uh, 10 years, uh, it's going to be 10 years now, I try not to teach too much. Uh, why? I also, also, also always have limitations uh, when I was teaching, when I was holding classes in Serbia and Croatia. Uh, it was never more than three times per week or four max. And the reason why I did this, it's first is I don't want this to become my regular job uh, because I want to keep the passion on all the time. When I teach, I like to give a lot of ice cream. I yell, I'm happy, I'm smiling and everything. And I, I'm all in. When I'm teaching, I want to share everything that I have. And for me, it's important to have for every class a lot of energy. So I don't. I never choose to teach uh, more than this in a week, except when I was in America for three months and I was teaching every day. Uh, but that was very ex- exhausting. <laughs> uh, so th- this is one my kind of rule that's not written, but it's kind of rule that I don't want to teach more than this because of I want to keep the fire alive and I want always to give something to these people. Uh, so that's the reason also why I did much more workshops in last couple of uh, years in terms in term, in comparing to the classes mm-hmm. i'm now actually will start to do uh, more classes here in belgrade in serbia uh, with parkour serbia uh, but also same rule will be applied not uh, not a lot of coaching uh, mm-hmm. this is uh, actually something that i also did learn from past i always want to do other things in my life as well so that's why i started the clothing company and uh, i did a lot of other things that to earn money because i didn't see myself living uh, from coaching and i didn't want to see myself coaching so much to that kind of you know the the only source for Mm-hmm. for income and then i couldn't rely on that then i could see uh, f- my future in the film i will be doing something and maybe i will not like it at some point at some point because it's going to be so stressful uh go every day and teach 20 30 people and so on and so on so that's one kind of 
uh, rule. And uh, what's my class about? It depends on the environment all the time, of course. Um, but it's uh, always need to be some, it doesn't need to be, it's always need, need to be energetic, I will say. It's, it's a lot of, is, is it uh, hard conditioning or is it a technique uh, team or is a uh, long movements? I always like to point out some weaknesses and to find some weaknesses in the group and try to, to push that. If you understand, like mm -hmm. if you as a group, if you find that something is missing, then we try to get around that and then push that as a group, whatever the topic is. Mm -hmm. Is it the conditioning? Is it the technique or something like that? And yeah, I, I mean, it's a lot of depends of where we are and what, what are the, is it a workshop? Is it a, a regular class in the regular city with the people that already did uh, many classes or are completely beginners? So it's, I cannot really give you the strict answer to that because it really depends. Okay, cool. So then the last kind of subject would be the, the how of practice. And this is something that, um, that I'm really interested in right now, which is uh, the pedagogy of how people try to get skills developed. How do we get people to be able to do something? How do you think about the role of the teacher, how the teacher works with the student, and how, um, how to kind of create a successful relationship that goes forward. So I'm curious what your, what your philosophy or your, um, your method is as far as how you think about what makes an effective approach to helping people attain skill in this, in this art. Mm, I will maybe have a bit old school approach to this because uh, uh, I learned in this kind of way and I also believe this is also still uh, key for, the, for this era at the moment. Uh, it's kind of you need to and we need to have coaches or we need to be coaches that we can influence other people uh, still we are still first generation rolling around kind of uh, training uh, this new thing that's called ADD or parkour and we need to show um, show things all the time and we need to be able to do it uh, before we just told them to do it you know it's like like ballet that exists yeah. uh, more than 100 years or something and i think that this influence it's very important at the moment to have like it's how i started this interview it's with my father i saw him to do all this thing and i wanted to do it and i see it's possible and if i dedicate my time i will do it yeah. i think it's similar philosophy is our job as uh, teachers coaches assistants whatever we are uh, we need to be able to understand what we're doing, to show what we're doing, maybe not using any names. And then for them and for everybody else who is trying to teach this, it will teach first for watching what we're doing and then using all the advices. I think that's very important that the quality and not just quality, the success, the, the, the percentage of success will be depending of how coach or how the person will show what you can do somehow what what are you doing how you're doing things and then the visual first and then everything else uh, i think very important because it's a lot of topics about this in the parkour world uh can we teach uh, from the chair or do we need do we know do we need to know the things before we show them i think yes 
but it, I think yes, still. And then sometimes in the future, uh, everything will be much different. But at this point now, I think still we we'll need to be very, you know, visual. You need to show them as much as you can and explain following following that visual exp explanation. And then I think the success will be uh, very high. Yeah, I think of this as uh, I, I kind of break down the roles of the coach into a few different um, areas. But one of the areas that I think about is aspirational leadership. So it's showcasing what the process can can become for you. So when you, when I'm teaching, especially at workshops, you know, I will make sure to find some jumps that I know will be really inspiring to the students. And then I'll do them and I'll showcase my process of, of going through something that's difficult and hard um, and, and dealing with fear. So I think of that as the aspirational leadership thing. I think it's an interesting thing because uh, one of the things that I see with, with the, the teaching community is some, some teachers are really good at this and some teachers don't do it at all. But when you, when you do it, the, the issue is that you can get caught into the energy of your own training. And you can then let it pull you out of attending to um, the needs of the students, right? It's like you can be there showcasing yourself and it can become a show rather yeah. than, than a, a, a element of show that supports um, a total approach to actually managing the outputs for the students for their purpose. How do you think about finding that balance? Yeah, of course. Yeah, with uh, probably with time and and probably with uh, being aware of this is experience. You know, it comes with experience. I think everybody we went through this phase uh, when you caught yourself. Oh, maybe I'm too much enjoying in this now, and maybe I need to dedicate more time to the to the students. But uh, I got myself there, of course, before. And then when you realize it, I mean the it's. I'll put it like this. When you know where is the, what is the problem, then it's easy to solve it, you know? You need to know how to work on things. Like, this is, if it's the same, you can apply the same thing in, in your jump. So if you're doing something and you cannot succeed, and then if you try to figure out where is the problem, why, why you cannot do it, then, oh, maybe I just need to bend this arm like this, and then, oh, okay, I will work on that. And then if you focus on work on bending that arm, and then you will do it. If you know where is the problem, you will work on the problem and then you will solve it. It's same for this. If you know, if you, you need to be aware of situation. If you know that you, if you're aware that you're showing off, then you will stop, of course. <laughs> I mean, you will move more energy to them or opposite. If you are too much talking about this, this, and oh, maybe I will need to show as well so they have visual about this. And then, yeah, it's everything always about balance, right? So one of the things that I think about with, with, with demonstration also is um, humans overgeneralize. They, they, will, they will mimic more. So if you, show, um, if, you, uh, if you show a child a motor task and say you're, you're opening something up, right, that has a resource in it, and you do a couple things that have nothing to do with getting the, the lid open, the child will replicate the entire sequence. If you show it to a chimpanzee, the chimpanzee won't imitate the, the nonsense and they will go straight to the solution. <laughs> um, and this turns out to be absolutely key to how humans learn. Because we overgeneralize and we imitate much more effectively, we, uh, we can pick up like a, 
a broader set of memes. I, I can't explain it articulately right now, but this is actually somehow key to, to human learning. Um, but I, I actually think there's a, there's, a, there's a trap here in when you're teaching that the students start to reflect things about the, the teacher that aren't actually in service to the students. Yeah, yeah I understand. And so I, I, what, one thing that I do is I try not to, um, I try not to demo in the beginning of the process unless it's necessary. If there's a way to, to show them, um, if there's a way to explain it to them and give them an opportunity to try it, and then to join them and let them see my movement, not as a example of the the right way to do it necessarily, but as um, but as someone participating in the process. I find that that's really uh, it, it helps avoid this trap. I'm curious if you if you've thought about that balance between the value of demonstration and the potential. Yes, 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 exactly. Yeah, it's amazing. So there is. Um, hmm. Uh, before it runs away. Ah, oh, what was I supposed to say? Okay, there is, I had two things, but I, uh, one just oh, fly to the window, I think. Uh, one of the, yeah, oh my God, I remember. <laughs> Take your time. Take a deep breath. <sighs> that uh, maybe, yeah. But anyway, uh, one of the things, uh, the second one, for first one, I, I lost. The second one is one of the things when I when I teach is on the beginning uh, or ever I try not to use names of the techniques because that definitely creates some imagery in their heads before they even try. So I saw that works really well. Uh, so if you say somebody will do Dai Kong today, blah blah. If people understand that language and if they understand the, what that means, they will imagine something that it's scary or, oh, I saw that on YouTube. And then like, you know, they directly get some fear from that and kind of some distance. So I try to not use really names. I, I'm trying to explaining and showing, like you said. Uh, so I think the best, way is when they trying to figure out on their own uh how to do it without using it that like, if you say maybe they will not do kong at all they maybe do something differently completely yeah. completely something else and that's even better than so um one of the things that i'm trying to do really minimum i if i use names i will use some simple like a precision or something but like if it comes to the more complicated stuff i try not to use technique because i want to see them developing using the magic you know doing something what their body said to do or what they had in their heads to do it on that obstacle so i think that's that's very i have this analogy about the names so the way i understand it is that the french guys didn't use a lot of names and then the english guys when they saw the french guys they um they they were trying to sort of translate it through a computer and and i think that it ends up kind of being a verbal thing right rather than seeing and feeling you're 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 expressing it in words and i think there was an influence i think from skateboard culture um and so now you ended up with this big list of of names and it was sort of perceived as a set of tricks that you require mm -hmm. um, and and I think that this this becomes a bit of a mistake. I, the way that I tend to think about it, like people often ask me, if you know, if you can only have, like, what's your favorite move? Or, or you can only have one move, what would it be? And it's like, well, 
That's like asking a poet what the, the best letter in the alphabet is. <laughs> exactly. What I think about the movement, what I think about the, the individual techniques is, is that they're like, um, they're like tools that a carpenter uses. But the goal isn't to have a bigger tool belt. The goal is to be able to do carpentry. Yeah. Right? Exactly. Not to invent new letters. It's to, to be able to write poetry. Um, but I still think it's useful to be able to, to have very clear language once the underlying structure yeah again you know you just need to know how to use it when to use it and if you balance it very well it works even better i think it's something that uh, teachers uh, definitely need to think about and to start applying it because or start start less applying names because uh, it will definitely be beneficial uh, how I discovered this, it's actually on the first year of my teaching. <laughs> uh, first year I was using all the names that we had, like, because our planning program was, was on the name. So oh, we'll, this month we'll do this technique, this month we'll do this technique, blah, 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 blah. And then next year I just put, put, put the names out. Like, I will not do the names. I will do the same kind of way of planning, but no names and work much, much, much better. I really like that. Yeah. How, how do you measure better? What What does better mean? I mean, uh, better means they they energy was better. Uh, maybe I don't using the right words in English, but like everything was kind of, you know, uh, more people did it earlier. We proceed to next things. Some people did differently. Some you know, progression and diversity. It was like uh, much more things was happening. So more beautiful to watch and more natural to be in it like as a coach uh it was everything was better for me in that terms uh when i said better because uh but this that works you know at the time and then kind of i got idea i still use names of course but not as much uh proud that some other coaches do yeah when you um when you over specify information in training you uh, you prevent the athletes from self-organizing and engaging in their own process, and you prevent the opportunity for them to express creativity. So it gets really rote and boring. So you get more energy when you when you give people a little bit more space to play with it. Exactly. Yeah, you're good with words, man. You you can I can just start to the sentence and then you can like make it sound really nice. I can never do that. Well, it's my native language, right? So. Well, um, I think this is a good, a good time for us to, uh, to kind of close the interview. It's uh, just about out of time. But thank you very much. If people are interested in knowing more about your work or checking out what you do, uh, where should they look for you? Is that a question? That's a question. <laughs> <laughs> where, should people, where should people find you? Uh, Facebook or Instagram probably, but I'm not really active uh, in the last six months again uh during this break i will probably be back more being active but also maybe that will not be a case i'm not sure but yeah instagram facebook my last uh, last name and the first name also yeah they can always check the website scotripsticks if if can, if they can find it it's too challenging <laughs> it's on purpose like that i can tell a story a short story about that uh, before we okay. uh finish gosh skip ticks exactly yeah, this also can be a homework for you, man. Because a name is actually created to be an obstacle for a tongue, you know. Uh, <laughs> tongue parkour. Yeah. 
Scorchy means a jump in our language, but chipstick doesn't mean anything. It's just made up word to be, so we added a suffix to be a obstacle for pronouncing. It's hard for even us in like this region that that word doesn't exist. <laughs> so chipsticks is a tongue obstacle, yeah, as you said. Chipsticks. <laughs> Very slow. It's, it, yeah, it's just uh, another obstacle, you know. Everything that we do in our life is just overcoming obstacles on every level, you know. And then yeah, yeah. why not put another one, just one more? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, people can tag, uh, check out Scopy's nice clothes. You sent me some. Uh, yeah, well, somehow, because this is the same thing, you know. They can, you can observe it. Like, people train outdoor and then because it becomes not so com uh, comfy they go indoor you know that was mm -hmm. with chipsticks was not so comfortable then scotchy is more comfortable so that's why everybody are calling scotchy and not chipsticks because yeah. maybe they're lazy or <laughs> I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we just shorten everything anyways <laughs> yeah okay man well it was a pleasure speaking to you um thank you for being on the podcast yeah, thank you for hosting me. Not in person. Next time, let's do it in, in the woods or, or somewhere by the lake or something like that. It would be much more fun. Sounds good. I look forward to it. Yeah. Yeah, Cheers, man. Thank you for listening to the Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe, and leave a review on iTunes if you can. Finally, as we mentioned before the show, this is a listener-supported podcast, and if you want to have the most regular content, have the best guests on, and give you guys the best quality of audio and video, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Thank you very much, and I look forward to sharing more with you guys soon.